And good morning, Creekside. I'm Mark. I'm one of the pastors here, and man, just so excited to be worshiping with you guys. Um, if you're visiting with us, we're so glad to have you here. Uh, it's, a, it's a blessing to get to spend time like this together with you, um, just pouring out our hearts to the Lord. So we're going um, to open up the Word of God this morning. And um, one thought I had, I was struck with um, this week, is that, you know, this, this church uh, doesn't talk about politics enough. You know, you guys ever feel that? I, um, I was struck with, I, th- so that thought, okay, I'm going to talk about politics a little bit, okay? So, but we're going to be okay because I'm going to talk about first century AD politics, okay? So probably you don't have a ton um, staked in that. But he- here's what I want to, here's what I want to, I was struck this week by this. Thessalonica, we're, we're talking about this um, letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, okay? Little church in Thessalonica. And, um, and the way the church was born um, the, the word of God came, Paul and Silas came to this little community, shared the word of God in their synagogues. It, it caused a stir amongst the religious leaders. They didn't like Paul and Silas saying the things that they did, chased them out of town. But there also was a political element to it as well. And it was the uh, political leaders in Thessalonica all, also were upset. So I want to share with you, this is from Acts 6, 17. Acts 17 is where Paul goes. And here's, here's the problem um, that the, the political leaders in Thessalonica had. And so they, they came, they took, uh, they took the people that were um, leading this revolt, Jason and some others, uh, or like took some of the Christians, and this is what they accused them of. They said, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I just, I just love that first thing. Like he's saying, the, the, the politically they're saying, Paul and Silas have come here, and they're the ones that have been all over the place turning the world upside down, right? Now, what were they doing to turn the world upside down? What they, what they were doing is they were saying, we followed Jesus. He was this Jewish rabbi, this Jewish leader. We followed him. He died, and he rose again, and, and we're proclaiming him as our king. He's the king that we're following, that we're living for. And so by doing that, by proclaiming who Jesus actually is, these political leaders are saying, man, these guys have been turning the world upside down. And how have they been doing it? He says, this guy, Jason, received them. They're all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. There is something problematic um, to the religious leaders, to those, or sorry, to the civic leaders, those in authority, when God's followers come and say, Jesus died for us, he rose again, he is the king, and to all those that are in uh, political authority, their ears perk up and they say, okay, hang on now, another king, I, I don't like this, I'm opposed to this, and they see it as a threat. And I learned this week, I didn't, I didn't really, I think I might have been vaguely aware, but it was kind of new for me, um, the word gospel, okay? So we are, we are like a people shaped by the gospel, okay? The, the word gospel is euangelion, that's the Greek word, euangelion, it's where we get the word evangelical from, okay? And so we are, we are an evangelical church, for better or worse, okay, with all the negative connotations the word got, gets, means different things to different people, we are evangelical in the sense that the the, the evangel, the, the euangelion, the, the gospel shapes who we are. Our, our denomination is evangelical free, so it's in our name. Um, we, we have on the wall the simplest way we could possibly state the gospel, which is that Jesus saves, right? And so that's constantly our reminder is we are gospel people. But the word gospel, I found this week, the word gospel is not something that Christians made up. It was something that we borrowed, and we borrowed it from Roman politics, actually, which is really interesting to think. We borrowed the concept of gospel, which just means good news, borrowed it. So there's a, this is in, inscription in Prien about Caesar Augustus's birthday, okay? So this is prior to Jesus and everything, and his, this inscription refers to Caesar Augustus' birthday as 
the beginning of the gospel for the world. I mean, just imagine the like hubris of a leader that's like, oh, my birthday? Yes, that was the beginning of the gospel for the world, right? This was good news to the world that I was born because now I'm here to lead you politically. Uh, later on, there's the emperor Vespasian. And um, when he took the throne, um, when, when that was announced, it, basically it says everyone, uh, every city celebrated the gospel, the euangelion, and offered sacrifices on his behalf, okay? So here it is, the new, the new leader of the Roman Empire is taking the throne. Um, this is the gospel that we proclaim to you. The good news that there is the right leader on the throne, right? There's, a, there's also a fragment from the New Testament era, speaking of Nero. Paul was alive at this time. Uh, calling Nero the good God of the inhabited world, the beginning of all good things, okay? And so there's this like civic gospel thrown around and into that world where there is this good news, we've got the right political leader, the Christians came and they began preaching the gospel, the good news that actually, yes, a king was born and he lived and he laid down his life, right? He died, he laid down his power and in doing so gives life to all of us and, and now is creating a new world in the midst of the old. This, this beautiful countercultural proclamation of the gospel is such a good reminder to us because I think there is a temptation that we all have uh, to believe a gospel uh, like this one, like, like good news, the gospel of this or that leader getting elected to office, right? Um, leading us as a president or a prime minister or a premier or something, depending on where you live, right? Good news, politics are going to get fixed. Our lives will be okay. And in the midst of it, the gospel comes in in a subversive way um, underneath all of that and says something different. Now, the reason I was looking at this this week is we're, we're actually in 1 Thessalonians 3 this week, and we're going to be starting um, in 1 Thessalonians 3 in verse 6, and Paul actually is going to talk about a gospel. He's going to announce a gospel, some good news to them, um, but it's different than what we typically hear. It's, a, um, it's sort of a subversive thing. And so let's look at this, the first couple of verses here, um, 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 and 7. It says, Now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. So Paul, Paul is addressing the situation that leads him to write First Thessalonians. He was with them. Church was maybe a few weeks or a few months old. Uh, was chased out by the, the civic authorities were upset and the religious leaders chased them out. And they're on the run from these religious leaders in Thessalonica that are tracking them down. And Paul and Silas are worried about what's happening. Like, is this baby church community going to survive? These people have only been believers in Jesus for a few weeks. Is this going to survive or not? And they're worried. They send Timothy back to get to find out. And finally, Timothy has come to them and he's giving them a good report. Okay, this is what, what he's saying. And look at what he says. He's brought to us what? The good news of your faith and love. The word there is euangelion. He's bringing to us the gospel of your faith and love. So Paul is preaching here a subversive gospel, um, a gospel of a group of people, right, who have heard and responded to the word of God, right? The Thessalonians, the first and second Thessalonians we're saying is all about a community of people that's shaped by uh, the word of God. And the gospel is so central to that. And so, so this is the core of it all. There's this good news. And the proclamation, though, the, the basic good news is this, that Jesus 
died for our sins, right? Jesus sees us in all of our lostness, in all of our sin, in all of our um, self-destruction, and he comes into that world. He dies, lays down his life, and through faith in him, right, we can experience this healing with him. And, and he, he dies and is risen again into new life. We're invited into that new life, into that kingdom with him. Like that is the good news in the gospel. But Paul comes and saying, hey, um, Timothy came and he announced the gospel that you are a people shaped by faith and love. And that happens, that faith and love that, that this group of people experienced comes from Jesus, right? It comes from their connection to him. It comes from them seeing the healing and hope and forgiveness that they've received in him. But it's beginning to transform their faith and their love. And so when Paul hears about that from Timothy, he's able to call it like, this is, this is a gospel, right? We're seeing it played out in the midst. It's a subversive gospel in a world where Rome is, is uh, the, the political leaders, and they're announcing good news, gospel of political leadership and political um, platforms and whatever else. There, he's coming and he's saying, there's a different kind of a gospel. It's a gospel of a community that is shaped by faith and love, because that comes ultimately from Jesus. And so for, for us, like we live in a society wh where uh, like everything is about our achievement, okay? We, like we're taught that, we know that deep down, like we've got to perform, we've got to achieve, we've got to at least take care of our own needs, and probably we have to climb a ladder be be beyond that. And so the gospel comes in, and in a society where it's all about our achievement, right, Paul is proclaiming here a gospel that looks very different, good news that looks very different than what we get from the world around us, Right? In a, in a society now where everything is about allegiance to a party, right? Whether that be Republican or Democrat, right? Or maybe it's like a more vague allegiance to like being conservative generally or being progressive generally or li liberal generally. In the midst of that where we feel tied to a specific sort of allegiance, Paul's preaching a different sort of a gospel, Right? In a society where we live and everything that we experience, right, is all about how we're not living up. Okay, we're told this constantly. We're not living up because we're not woke enough, right? Or because we're not anti-woke enough, right? We're not living up for one of those two reasons, right? Depending on who you talk to. Um, we live in a society where, like, we're, maybe we're not sensitive enough to the cultural trends that are going on. Or perhaps we're too sensitive to the cultural trends and what's happening, right? So either way, we're getting this message of you're not living up to it because of where it's coming from. We live in a world, weirdly, where both conservatives, I think, and liberals are actively engaging in cancel culture, where they, they you know, cancel and, and, and shut down anyone who's saying anything different, while actively accusing the other side of being the ones who are giving in to cancel culture, right? It's the bizarrest thing, but everybody's doing it. Everybody's canceling everybody. It's the hottest thing in the world, and they're also accusing it. So we live in this society where you can't possibly do everything right. You can't possibly live up to the expectations of your team and your party. And in a society like that, here comes a gospel, the good news of a small community's faith and love in Jesus. It's a beautiful reminder that gives me, this week has just given me this breath of fresh air to say, you know, there's so much more that I need to understand about politics, right? There's so much more I need to know about what's going on in the world. But at the end of the day, let me breathe a sigh of relief. This is about a king that has laid down his power, laid down his life, and in resurrecting offers this new life to us, and he shapes communities like this. See, Paul, Paul's saying that the, the, the church in Thessalonica was a gospel community, a community shaped by the gospel. And that's what we are too, right? There's this good news that in the midst of that world that we see every time we log in on, on social media— Every time you see like the bumper stickers, every time you watch the news, every time you hear, in the midst of that world, right, there exists a group of people. 
where we sit here and we look at each other and we know that we're all a little bit different, right? And some of us are pretty, pretty weird, actually. And, and, and definitely some of us are wrong. At least half of us are wrong, right? Um, and in the midst of that big, crazy, chaotic, condemning world, there exists the good news that there is a community of people that love each other regardless of differences, that, that are able to forgive when we wrong each other, that are able to help each other when we fall and when we're weak, right? That is good news. It's a, it's a gospel. It's a proclamation of the fact that because of the gospel that Jesus has saved us from our sins, good news, there exists a community in the world that's shaped by that. And I love, I love how um, mutual this is, okay? How not individualistic it is. Because all of us, let me just say this clearly, all of us have a responsibility before the Lord to, to see what Jesus has done and to respond to it individually, okay? So you responding to who Jesus is, 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 is not enough for me, okay? I don't get to like ride your ticket or whatever. Like I don't get to be made right with God because of something you did, but... I will also say this, zooming back from that, it is not just about the individual decisions that we all make individually. There's also this collective aspect to it. And Paul's language throughout this whole section has been about how excited and how much he rejoices in what God's doing in the broader community, what he's doing with each other. And so he's able to say like, man, I was so excited um, because Timothy came to us with this good news of your faith and your love, right? And that you're longing to see us just like we long to see you. This beautiful picture of this mutuality that comes um, from a community shaped by who Jesus is. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so I, I find in this a reminder, okay, that, that t- Paul's sitting there. Paul and Silas are sitting there, and they're in a dark spot. They've been chased from town to town. Um, they don't know what's becoming these. So they're in a dark spot. They don't see God working, right? And then Timothy comes with good news and says, hey, Paul, Silas, you have been worried because you haven't been able to see God working But let me tell you, God is working. Look what's happening over here in Thessalonica. To me, this is the reminder we need from time to time, which is is this. We get into our own individual heads, our own individual lives, our own individual constraints and pressures and failures, right? Our own individual doubts, and we get in our own individual ruts, right? And, and when we're in that spot, we might be asking God, like, show me that you're real. Show me that you're working. Heal, heal this specific person in my life. Heal that person. And when we do that, sometimes God chooses not to answer in the ways that we want, right? Or perhaps we're blind to be able to see the way he's answering, right? So if we're individuals, then we're on this massive roller coaster before the Lord of, is he real? Is he not, Right? But if we can take Paul's view of what the community is about and look around and say, okay, I'm having some struggles and some doubts in my relationship with God right now. I've been asking him to show me how real he is, and I'm just not seeing him respond to it. But if we can do that and then sit here in this room, right, and look around at each other, and and we can get to know each other's names, and we can get to know each other's stories, and we can begin to, like, find out what God's doing, what we'll find is maybe God's not answering my prayers in the way that I want him to or in a way that I'm able to perceive it. But there's so much proof in this room right now that God is working. And I I would be blind and I would have to be isolated to not understand, see clearly evidence that God is working right now all over the place because of what I know he's doing in each of your lives. And so in that way, we become this kind of support system to each other. It's a beautiful thing. It's the way God designed our community to work. It's not just about me as an individual. So Paul's going to go on to say more, more similar language here. He says, For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. I I love this. Paul says, 
now we live, okay, this is our life. This is how we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Again, he's just like tying his faith to this community, to these other people. It's not just about me as an individual. I'm alive if, if you're standing firm in the Lord, okay? He's tying it to each other. I, I resonate with this so much, the idea of talking to somebody else and your, your soul comes alive when you're able to connect with a person and see what makes another person happy. I was thinking this week, I had, we had a, um, when Laura and I lived down in Southern California, we had a neighbor that was um, a very different person than myself, okay? Uh, not very strong and, uh, no, I'm just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. Um, he was different than me for other reasons than that. Um, uh, there was not a lot that we related to each other on. Let me just say it that way. And so we'd have these conversations that were pretty um, dull and dead until if you got onto the topic somehow of the zombie apocalypse and how the government is eventually going to come for us, right? And how we'd better be prepared for that. If you got onto that topic, this dude would come alive, okay? And he would talk and you could have this like deep conversation for hours where he would show you the like, you know, the big drums of water that he's collecting from rainfall that used to fall in Southern California sometimes. And uh, he would talk about his... Uh, stores and munitions stashed in the hills up and around so that when he needed to, he could grab the stuff. So it, there's just that whole thing, right, where you are talking and, and life is a little, and then, and then the right topic comes up, right? And there's this connection that you have and somebody comes alive and you come alive in response to that whole thing, right? You become animated, which is the same thing. It means coming alive. There's this whole thing, this like resonance that we feel. I think this is what we talk about when we say like falling in love with somebody, Right? And we all know, like, love is a choice, and, and uh, you don't fall into love because then you could fall out of love. But, but when we say, like, I'm, I'm in love with this person, I fell in love, it means, like, our souls had this connection, right? Like, I really, like, there's something about you that gives a whole lot of life to me. There's this deep connection that we have, right? And that's true for, like, romantic relationships. There's also, like, a, a bromance version of this, right, where you connect with another dude or, or a womance uh, connection, if you will, for you ladies, um, I think we just used to call it friendship, you know, like we just connect with somebody you're like, wow, this person's amazing and you come alive, you know, or uh, we might call it kindred spirits for you Anne of Green Gables fans, you know. Um, but there's something in us, right, that just like connects to somebody else and, and we kind of come alive in that. And I think that's what Paul's saying. He's like, man, like my faith is just lifted. Like this is where I find life because like I've invested in you, right? And we know each other. And when I, when I dig deeper with you and we experience these things together, I find myself just like coming alive. I love that picture when I see you standing firm in the Lord. And I don't think he means when we see you perfected and never having any doubts. I think he's just saying, you standing fast in the Lord is what gives us life. So we want to see you connected to that source, finding life in Jesus and who he is, and just being connected that way. This to me has been so encouraging because this is uh, last, uh, I don't know, September maybe, we talked about our mission statement as a church. And we said, who, who are we as Creekside Church? We're a group of people that are seeking to glorify God by finding life in Jesus together and inviting others to do the same. Like, that's who we are. And I think that's exactly what Paul's talking about here is, is we're finding life in Jesus together. Okay, so we, we're all doing it individually. We're all just trying to find all the life that can be had in Jesus. He's this infinite source of life and joy and hope, right? But we're trying to do that together, okay? And so we link arms and say, together, let's find life in Jesus. Let's get really excited about who he is. Let's explore all the different ways that we'll spend the rest of our life discovering of how much life we can find in Jesus. And as we do that together, Let's keep inviting more people to just do that with us. Finding life in Jesus. I, I love um, what it points to. And with that, look, look at what Paul says in verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake, 
before, we go, before God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul is so excited about these people. I just, I love it. I, he's so um, others-centered in it. Like his joy in this. He's like, I just can't stop thanking God for what he's doing in you. And that is giving us all kinds of joy, right? It's this beautiful picture of like, he's just tied to them. He's all about them. He like loves them so much. Um, I read a while back this, this book from Tim Keller called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And my goodness, I mean, just the title alone is worth the price of the book. Um, it is so good. It's a short book, but The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And, um, and he's, he's basically saying how what happens is we become self-centered. Our pride kind of pulls us away from everybody else, and it causes us to kind of separate from everybody else. And, um, and he, he says it like this. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. And I resonate with that deeply, okay? So, you, yeah, you might think that the proud person just wants it all for himself so that he can enjoy it, but he's saying, actually, no, it, it really works at every level, right? Every single level, it's the whole key is I've got to have a little bit more, be a little bit cooler, or be a little bit different than the people around me. There's this comparison thing that sees people as a threat rather than seeing them as Paul saw them, which is as partners, right? People to love. Um, uh, Tim Keller quotes C.S. Lewis talking about how if you ever met a humble person, like you wouldn't really think of them as humble because uh, the humble person isn't like talking about how lowly they are, right? He's like, that's just another way of thinking of yourself, right? Um, he says that the humble person, you would be struck by how much they were interested in you and who you are. They, they would be so like um, not thinking about themselves at all. He says, it's not thinking lowly or highly of yourself. It's not thinking of yourself at all. So he says, when you meet a humble person, you're going to be surprised by how much they like to talk about you, how interested they are in you. And Tim Keller uses this uh, illustration of a figure skater, you know, an Olympic ice skater, right? W wouldn't you like to be the skater who wins the silver and yet is thrilled about those three triple jumps that the gold medal winner did? To love it the way you love a sunrise, just to love the fact that it was done. For it not to matter whether it was their success or your success, not to care if they did it or if you did it, you are as happy that they did it as if you had done it yourself because you were just so happy to see it. Isn't that beautiful? I just, I love that thought. And I love, man, if that could translate to a church family, wouldn't it be beautiful, right? So we, we see Eric Martinez up here like playing the drums and doing such an amazing job, right? And, and maybe there's someone in here that's like, I bet I could play drums better than him, right? Um, a lot of us aren't drummers, right? Or to see Julia up here just like singing her heart out and be like, man, I wish I could sing. But no, like we should just be here and be like, I, I am so thankful that I get to be part of a church family where people like Eric and people like Julia are here using their gifts, right? And we can look around at all of us and just say, man, like, um, what I bring to the table is important. I know that because God's put those gifts inside of me. But to sit here and just be geeking out and being like, I cannot believe that I get to be part of the same church family as this person and this person and this person because of everything that they bring, everything that they add, all the ways that they pull more of who I am out of me. I think that's exactly the, the mentality that Paul has. It's an other-centered faith. It's tying our faith to each other and just saying, like, look, it's not enough for us to sit here side by side week after week and not really know know and not really care and not really invest 
our faith could be so much deeper if we looked around, if we invested, if we exchanged numbers, if we went and did things together, if we, if we cared and prayed for each other. Man, it would be such a different feel uh, to who we are as a church. And Paul says it like this. He says at the very end of that, um, he's praying earnestly night and day that they would see them and that they would be able to supply what is lacking in their faith. So here's Paul saying, like, I want to invest. I want to supply what's lacking. I want to see everything that you need and I want to be there. But the way Paul does it, I love that it's not strategy and it's not him trying to make it happen. It's him saying, we're constantly praying that the Lord would give us opportunities to do this. And so I'll just say to us, like, if Paul needed to pray for the opportunities to do it, we need to pray for the opportunities to do it, okay? And I think it starts there, right? It doesn't start with us like, like um, uh, just figuring out supernaturally with somebody. It's like, let's just pray and say, Lord, help me to know the people that are around me. Help me to find what they need and just give me the, the, the initiative and the, the next step to be able to help that person in what they're doing. I love that Paul prayed. I want to be able to see them, Lord. Please help me to be able to see them and help me to be able to give them something, supply something that they're lacking. I also love in this the reminder that we are all lacking something. You know, Paul wanted to go and see them because there's something lacking in your faith. There's something that you still need, and I want to be able to supply that. And man, that's how we should be functioning with each other, right? There's something in my faith that's lacking if I don't have you in particular investing in my life. I need all of you to be able to invest in me so that nothing is lacking. And, and it works for us with all of each other. Man, it's this beautiful family thing. I got, um, I got roped into, I think that's the, like, the, the, happiest way I can say. I got roped into coaching my daughter's basketball team again, and I swore it would never happen because of a scenario uh, less than a year ago where I was coaching, and within like five minutes, I had one parent yelling in my face and another parent cussing in the stands at me that Laura had to deal with, and she did a great job. If you ever need a watchdog, get Laura. Um, yeah, she was awesome. She shut it down, you know what I'm saying? Um, but I was like, I was like, okay, coaching is clearly not my thing. I'm not, I was doing a great job too, but anyway. Um, <laughs> So I, I got, I'm, I'm assistant coach, okay, but the problem is sometimes the coach is out of town, so I'm like filling in, okay. It's just rec league or whatever, but anyway, I'm there. Another dad offered to help out, but we had two girls. So the rec league basketball is like you have girls that get really good, and then you have girls that have literally never played a basketball game in their life, okay. So I had, we had one practice under our belt. I had two girls that had never played a basketball game in their life, and I'm telling you, there was like fear in their eyes, and there were like, there were tears for sure. And so, um, so it's like, what, you know, I can't play coach, you know, so I put on my Mr. Rogers sweater, okay? <laughs> and I said, this other dad was kind of taking point. I'm like, hey, um, girls, you sit with me on the bench, okay? And, and we're going to watch what happens, and I'm going to ask you every quarter, do you want to go into the game, um, or, or do you need to wait a little bit longer? And if you say no the whole game, it's totally fine, but I believe you can do it, and just watch what they're doing, and you can go in. So I did, and the fear was there, man. The fear was strong and big. I mean, it's intimidating to jump in when you don't even know all the rules and everything. Anyways, um, about halfway through the game, one of the girls is like, yeah, I think I do want to go in. Okay, great. Let's get you in there, right? Um, next quarter, the other one, like, yeah, I want to go in. So we got these two girls in the game. I feel like it's a huge win. Um, the successes on the court were one of the girls took a shot, actually. Didn't necessarily hit the rim, right? But she took a shot. And it was like, it was like you know, like, yes, great job, you know? The other one um, got the ball, dribbled a couple times, and made a successful pass. And I'm like, that's the win. Like, those are the wins, you know? <clears throat> And I just, I feel like, man, that's, the, these are the beautiful victories of like participation. Of like get in there. You can, you can do this. Like you can actually do it. But we sit so often on the sidelines and I think, man, that's how it is. I, I'm sure, I'm sure this is how it is with the Lord, right? I mean, like 
we're all so accomplished, we're so capable, we're so winsome, we're so intelligent. And yet for the Lord, it's like, oh man, I put Mark in the game. He didn't hit the rim, but like, look at how hard he tried. Look how great. This is amazing, right? But I, I think that's it. I mean, it's a team sport. And I just love how excited Paul is about the very prospect that they would do anything at all. And he's just seeing their faith and their love. And he's not into what he's accomplishing. He's into what God is doing through them. It is so, so beautiful. So I think the key is let's pray like Paul prayed for these opportunities. And here's how he ends it. He ends it with this prayer. He says in verse 11 and 12, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So he's praying for two things. He's praying that they would get to be with them, and he's praying that their love would keep growing for, he says, uh, for one another and for all. So, like, I'm praying, let me come see them, and Lord, just keep their love growing, growing, growing for each other in the church and for everybody that they encounter. Let their love just keep increasing, increasing, increasing. This is Paul's prayer for them, right? And it's, it's huge. It's so important. It's so vital because when our love grows cold, really bad things happen, Okay. You think of a, a loveless church, and some of you are like, I don't have to imagine that hard, right? Um, you think of a loveless church, and it's a terrible place to be. It's a terrible place because you can talk about all the right doctrine, and, and you can still have all the relationship, but without love, right, there's no grace, there's no forgiveness, um, there, there's no, like, acceptance, there's no investment, right? Without love, it's all so cold and demanding and hard and painful and so he's praying for them, man, let their love increase for the people that are part of their church and for the people that aren't, right? For, for one another and for all. Like, let their love increase. Praying, God, please, 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 please just increase their love. This is the big thing that has to come. And it has to be praying for people that are, that, are, that are like us and people that are not like us, right? And so for some of us, it's praying like, God, God, help me to be able to love a Democrat. Or let me help be able to love a Republican, right? Let me, let me love somebody who sees a little bit of value in CRT, right? Or, or someone who doesn't. And if you don't know what CRT is, don't look it up. doesn't matter. Let me love somebody who, who believes religiously different than I do, right? Let me love someone who's Buddhist or Hindu or something like that, right? All these things, I think he's just saying, man, let their love increase more and more. I want to show you this real quick to kind of end. Um, Jesus, when he talks about the end times, all right, there's been a lot of times last couple of years, a lot of talk over the last couple of years about the end times, okay, and how we know it's coming. And we all point to things, right? We all know like, okay, Russia's at it politically again, and I don't know exactly how I fit, but I, that's on my end times bingo card, okay? Like, Russia up to something means the end times coming, right? Um, the government doing a thing, right? The, the advent of Apple Pay has to be involved in there somehow. I don't really know how, but right? So we have our bingo cards of how do we know the world is wrapping up and it's coming to its end. Look at what Jesus says. This is on, this is in Matthew 24. This is on the heels of him talking about the wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and all those things that we're familiar with, right? Look at what he says. He says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Are we seeing that? Absolutely we are. Many false prophets will arise and leave many astray. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the entire world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. 
So Jesus is saying, right, there are the, the wars, rumors of wars. There's all those things happening, right? But he's also like, here's how you're going to know that it's going to happen is the love of many will grow cold. And, and sure, like Russia and all these, like everything's concerning. I mean, everything is totally concerning. There's never been a time where Christians weren't like, okay, this is the end because I'm seeing this, this, and this happen, right? It's always been the case. But what he's saying is like, man, the love of so many people is just going to grow cold. And I feel like that, that to me is a great description of the time that we're living in right now. A time where everybody's love has just kind of chilled out a lot. We've become a lot more frosty. We've become a lot less trusting of each other. We've become a lot less giving towards each other. And so Paul is sitting here praying, meanwhile, to this Thessalonian church. Man, this baby church. And they're being, they're being attacked, right? They're, they're being, like, persecuted. And so they're this Im- embattled little community here in Thessalonica. And Paul's like, please, Lord, please, Lord, just let their love keep increasing for each other and for all, right? It sounds like Jesus who was like persecuted and and beaten and betrayed and spit on, and yet he himself laid down his life in love for the very people that were attacking and persecuting him. And so Paul is just sitting there, Lord, please, this little community, their faith and their love, Lord, just let their love for each other and for everyone else just keep increasing, keep abounding. And, and, And I love how Jesus says it, right? The love of all these people will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. I think, it's, I think it's meaning like the one who is able to maintain this act of love, right, is the one in whom the seeds of the gospel are really taking root, is really growing up in their lives, is really pushing around. Finally, back to 1 Thessalonians. I want to end here. The last line there, uh, verse 13, actually, he says, um, he says, so, uh, so make their love abound and increase, right? so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So he's saying, Lord, let their hearts increase with love so that they would be blameless in holiness before you. And you think of everything in the Old Testament. What did it mean? It was so vital that everyone be holy when they came into the presence of the Lord. There was all the washing, right? There were all the sacrifices. There was everything they had to do to keep themselves holy. And here Paul is using that language and saying, Lord, fill their hearts with love. Because if you do that, if you fill them up with love, then they're going to be living these lives that are blameless in holiness before you. I love that reminder, that picture, that love is the foundation of that. Love is the thing that grows and matures and that changes us from the inside out. It's the thing that he's calling us to. And so I want to end this in this discussion of love and this discussion of an other-centered life by us taking communion together. 